Welcome to the FDIC podcast special series, Banking on Innovation. My name is Sultan Megji. I'm the Chief Innovation Officer here. And with me today, I'm just so excited to have uh, my friend Tim Maurer, uh, who I met millions of years ago at, at, the, at Carnegie and has now got one of the coolest jobs, I think, in the U.S. government. So first off, Tim, thank you for doing this today. It's great to see you again. Thank you, Sultan, for having me. It's great to be here. Fantastic. So for for our audience, why don't you tell everyone what your current job is? Sure. So in February, I joined the Biden-Harris administration as the senior counselor for cybersecurity and emerging technology to the Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas. So I'm his principal advisor in his office on all things cybersecurity and emerging technology. And as you can imagine, it's been uh, fairly busy uh, the past few months uh, since I've joined. That is, I believe, one of the biggest understatements I've ever heard, to say it's fairly busy, even, even in our world in banking. That is, those two topics between cybersecurity and emerging technologies dominate so much of what we do here at FDIC and certainly in my role. But you know, for people who don't know you, I mean, I have the luxury of having known you for a while, but for, for those who don't know you, what's your story? Like, what got you to February of this year? So as you know, I, prior to joining uh, the administration, spent uh, the past years working at various think tanks in Washington, D.C., focusing on cybersecurity policy and emerging technology. I joined the transition team that prepared for the new administration and was focused on what should be the various policies and first actions um, that we should take with respect to cybersecurity uh, in the first uh, several weeks of the administration. So in September, I joined uh, the transition team and was working with that uh, small group of people that uh, built on the work that was done uh, during the campaign and essentially thought through what do we need to do day one, the first week, the first couple of weeks. Um, and uh, as you as you re- will recall, uh, solar winds, uh, the solar winds incident in December just further drew attention to the importance of cybersecurity and how much work there there remains to be done. As we go through, you know, this journey from you know the think tank world to the transition team, and then now as this advisor to the current Homeland Security Secretary, I look at a variety of different actions that that we've been trying to do at the at the federal level. You know, there's been an executive order around zero trust, a couple of other things like that. You know, as someone who's also newer to government, you know, how has that transformation gone in terms of taking, you know, things we all we all know are big priorities and actually turning it into action? What's that been like just from a human process perspective, like learning this? It's a great question. I think, uh, you know, the first um, time I was confronted with how to navigate that was, when the secretary gave his speech on March 31st, Mm -hmm. outlining his vision. And in the weeks prior to that and leading up to that, um, the question was, how do we uh, provide a sense of of order and a a roadmap, given that the Department of Homeland Security is responsible for critical infrastructure protection across various sectors? Um, He, as the secretary, is not just the secretary for cybersecurity, but obviously uh, immigration and a lot of other things uh, that that, uh, the department is focused on. So the way we were able to navigate that was we essentially drafted the speech that provided a vision for what the department would focus on, but then operationalized it through this idea of 60-day sprints, where we would identify specific priorities and then channel 
uh, the office of the secretary and drive action across the apartment, but also working with our partners um, through this idea of having dedicated 60-day sprints in addition to the more medium to long-term priorities. Was that a big cultural shift for the organization? Was that like, did, did you have to spend a lot of time explaining what a sprint was and what a scrum master was and things like that? <laughs> <laughs> so I think some people remembered a sprint uh, that took place a couple of years ago across the federal government to just drive uh, certain cybersecurity measures. Um, but the, the the way we designed it across various components of DHS and having them consecutively focus on different issues, I think that was new to the department. Um, but the idea caught on very quickly. Um, we have a fantastic policy team and a, a fantastic cyber team that we worked with very closely to put together an action plan for the sprints and to then to then execute and drive action. So I think people felt excited about it. It provided a clear kind of roadmap and, and vision. Um, and, you know, in between, we had the occasional cyber incident that uh, we had to obviously uh, manage and then also take on into account as we thought about uh, policy development and next steps for, for our work. You know, for those who didn't hear the secretary's speech on March 31st, would you mind giving a, you know, a couple of high points that you think it's, it's worthwhile for the audience to hear? Yeah, of course. So the, uh, what the secretary outlined in his speech was that cybersecurity is a top priority for this administration. Um, following the solar winds incident, uh, where we had this massive campaign exploiting uh, solar winds and then uh, infecting several thousand uh, solar winds customers, the president-elect at the time already issued a statement making clear that cybersecurity would be a top priority. Um, it is one of the top priorities for for the secretary um, uh, himself. So what the speech outlined was one that this will have his attention throughout his, his tenure. Two, that too often cybersecurity is thought of as a standalone value, but that we need to recognize that cybersecurity is something that we need to think through with respect to our uh, values and principles and how we just think about how we go about uh, security generally as a, as a society. Um, and this will, I think, also with respect to the ongoing discussions about artificial intelligence, there are some, some important uh, analogies here. And then he outlined the series of six sprints. The first one was focused on tackling ransomware more effectively. Um, so this was in, in, in March pre-colonial uh, because we were at the time very concerned about ransomware attacks specifically targeting um, hospitals and healthcare facilities. And specifically with respect to the rollout of the vaccine, uh, we were worried that ransomware attacks uh, posed a risk that was at the level of a national security risk that, that we needed to elevate in terms of a... Of a priority uh, for the department and for the country to focus on. The second one was focused on uh, the workforce and actually led to the biggest cybersecurity hiring effort in the department's history, where we brought several hundred people on board because we have uh, this as a priority and need to make sure we have the people to uh, actually execute. Um, and we are currently in the midst of the third sprint, which focuses on industrial control systems. So the kind of systems that run critical infrastructure specifically. And the next three sprints are going to focus on the transportation system, then the election infrastructure, and then uh, last the international dimension of our work. And meanwhile, we, we have several ongoing priorities that we are very focused on, which is protecting the federal government um, in the wake of the solar winds uh, incident and making sure we put the, all of government in a better position. 
Second, making sure that we strengthen the integrity of, of the supply chain, which again, not just uh, solo wins, but also the Kaseya ransomware attack highlighted the importance of making sure we think through the full chain of what needs to be secure. And then protecting our democratic institutions and elections, you know, elections uh, are already uh, 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 are always on the horizon. And then last is focusing on issues that are on the horizon. So emerging technology, where uh, we can just be always stuck in the here and now, but we need to make sure we also keep a focus on issues that will happen in a couple of years and where we need to take uh, preparatory action now so that we are well positioned. You know, Tim, I, that's a great summary. And it, it just strikes me that I didn't hear two things in that discussion. I'm really curious where they land in this universe. So the first is, you know, we're a financial regulator, right? So do you just trust us that we're doing such a great job that you don't need to make that a sprint? <laughs> that, that's a great, a, a great question. When the White House released the National Security Memorandum in July that focused on critical infrastructure, the White House highlighted that the current approach is focused on individual sectors and that we have uh, certain regulators that have taken action with respect to cybersecurity for specific act sectors. But that is not across the board, and it also varies significantly from regulator to regulator and how much cybersecurity has been something that they've focused on. I think with respect to the financial sector, given that the financial sector has been a target uh, of, of malicious hackers, you know, as, since the advent of the internet, at least since it was commercialized in the early, uh, in the early 1990s, uh, I think the first major bank, or New York Times article about a $10 million uh, heist was in 1994. Yeah. Um, uh, the financial sector has been in many ways at the forefront for a lot of other sectors mm -hmm. um, and has some very interesting lessons learned, uh, partly because a lot of financial institutions have enough resources to actually protect themselves against it. Uh, but I would say that there also still remains work to be done in the financial sector. To your <laughs> earlier point about interconnectedness, yeah. uh, sometimes the firm level attention uh, uh, blinds uh, the focus on potential systemic risks or the kind of nodes in the network yeah. where if they are affected could have a systemic yeah. impact. Um, so I think there's been a lot of very interesting uh, thinking in the financial sector that has been helpful to us as we also think about other sectors. Well, it's interesting. So one of the things we've done recently is started organizing vertical risk based on any institution or any subset of institutions versus horizontal risk, which is systemic because you know obviously the FDIC has this deposit insurance fund that covers a, a tremendous percentage of the banks in the United States. And one of the things that, that we are you know, dealing with is that at any one moment, there are multiple, in fact, tens in some cases, ransomware attacks against banks. And that that doesn't just have impact to those individual institutions. There's a network effect. There's a broader set of horizontal risk we have to consider. And that's a you know that's something I think 10 years ago none of us were really thinking about, or even 15 years ago. And so now this is a bigger part of our discussion. Yeah, and I'm, uh, if, I, if I may, the point you just made is actually really interesting because when the colonial pipeline um, ransomware attack happened, which uh, you know happened, occurred on a Friday, and we started tracking this in the, in the front office uh, Friday afternoon, and it was fascinating to watch how quickly the discussion turned from the immediate impact of the malicious cyber activity to the public's reaction. And here's a clear analogy to the financial sector, at least that's how I, I thought about it at the time, which was we need to be very careful about how the public is reacting and the communications we are putting out because this could quickly get into a point where we may have to worry about a run on gas stations if people start being wor worried not having access to, to gas and fuel and that the, the 
the public's reaction may aggravate the actual impact of the incident. So very similar to a run on the yeah. bank, oh, yeah. uh, you know, and then uh, a few weeks later, um, TSA, which is part of the Department of Homeland Security, issued a, a first security directive for cybersecurity and um, and pipeline the most critical pipeline owners and operators, and required incident to be reported uh, to to the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at uh, DHS CISA, as we call it, um, and the the timeline for the reporting uh, was set at 12 hours. And the reason it is set at 12 hours was because there was a recognition following the colonial incident that that public reaction piece of it um, and it is critically important and that for us as the government to know early on if there is an incident that could rise to that level of it being in the media because once you shut down a pipeline, others are going to notice that you've shut down the pipeline, um, to be ahead of the curve when it comes to the public communications piece so that you can early on address any concerns and mitigate the risk of a potential reaction that makes the crisis worse than it could than it actually is. So there was a clear analogy here to, to I think, some of the lessons learned from the financial sector. Let's start talking about the future a little bit because, you know, one of the one of the conversations for the audience that Tim and I've had a couple of times is, is things that are coming, you know, whether it's some of the great power discussions that have, that have started, whether it's quantum computers, where it's artificial intelligence. Tim, start, let's start off with AI. Like what's, what's going on in, in DHS? What's going on in your head as it relates to artificial intelligence? Yeah, it's actually quite exciting. Um, when I, I joined DHS in February, and you know, got up to speed of what uh, some of the work that had happened internally. DHS actually issued a dedicated strategy focused on artificial intelligence in December, shortly after the White House had issued its executive order focusing on AI, which uh, outlined a set of principles for how we should be thinking about use cases and implementing uh, the implementation of machine learning and artificial intelligence to ensure that it takes into account uh, uh, some of the recent concerns around discriminate, discrimination um, and make sure that we are thoughtful and careful about how we adopt new technologies. So the, the DHS strategy has taken a lot of that on board and um, we are now in the process of thinking through how to implement machine learning and artificial intelligence across the various components, whereas DHS, as I mentioned, you know, we have uh, TSA or we have CISA, uh, there's Customs and Borders uh, Protection, CBP, um, ICE, uh, HSI, the Coast Guard is part of DHS. So um, there's a lot to think through in terms of what are the actual use cases uh, of machine learning across the department. Um, but we recognize that um, the country, I think, is coming to terms with how quickly the technology is evolving, uh, is coming to terms with some of the um, challenging and some of the difficult ethical questions um, the implementation of the new technology is posing. But we are very determined at DHS to be thoughtful and to be working not just internally with our respective uh, stakeholders, but also to be working with our external stakeholders and the respective uh, be privacy groups, civil liberty groups, industry stakeholders um, to discuss with them how we can do this in a thoughtful manner. And um, there, as you know, continue to be discussions about um, how to how to implement uh, certain technologies like fake facial recognition or others uh, in, a, in a thoughtful way. So. Uh, we definitely want to, it's top of mind for us, and uh, we're excited that we were one of the first departments to have a dedicated strategy focused on AI uh, and continue to implement it. You know, beyond artificial intelligence, you know, I worry 
personally, you know, five or ten years out. I worry about issues with our workforce. I worry that I, I, I worry about this interconnectedness. I worry about debt, you know, technical debt in the system, you know, old, old computers, old networks. You know, we, we see a path with zero trust, you know, architectures. We see a path with with kind of self-healing systems and, and some of the more interesting things people are doing with artificial intelligence at kind of an infrastructure layer. But there's a lot to do between now and then. And, you know, having a policy is great. Having a strategy is great. But, you know, we are seeing a fundamental shift in the workforce. We're seeing a fundamental shift in how we implement technologies like this. And, you know, the federal government is never really ever the first <laughs> to do anything. And and uh, that's my understatement of the day. Um, and, you know, DHS is at this nexus of so many different things going on. You know, can you can you share a little inside baseball with us about how you guys are thinking about how to position us as a nation for 10 years out, 15 years out? Yeah, I think that's that's the big uh, the big question the, uh, that everybody's asking how we not just how do we um, train and find the right people, but how can we actually do it at scale considering this broader tech revolution that I think we are all uh, going through. What we've done at DHS at this point, and you know, we are five months into the new administration, but there's been a lot of work that has been done in prior administrations as well, is one, we, within the department first, had the second sprint dedicated to the workforce to bring people on board and fill empty, empty billets uh, within the department and just make sure that we had uh, the people to execute uh, our mission. And that continues to be a, 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 um, something we will remain very focused on because, as you know, in our field, people uh, uh, may... Uh, switch and join industry um, a few years down the road. So there's this also, you can't just assume people will, will stay with you for five or 10 years, but you have to constantly uh, make sure that you uh, draw attention to opportunities, that you recruit people, um, and that you train people who internally may want to follow that path and may have been in a different trajectory before. What we've also done, the speech that the secretary gave on March 31st was actually an event that we deliberately partnered uh, with with the, the Girl Scouts of the USA and with Hampton University, which is a historically black university that is a recognized center for cyber excellence by both DHS and NSA. And we also partnered with RSA. Um, and the reason we wanted to partner um, with these very stakeholders is one, because we are the Department of Partnerships and to reflect that in terms of the actual event. But we specifically wanted to partner with the Girl Scouts uh, of the USA because we, wa we wanted to highlight that it's important for us to already be thinking about that pipeline and how do we inspire the next generation of people to pursue a career in cyber, to pursue a career in STEM, um, uh, starting in high school and then ideally in college. It's absolutely fantastic. And, and you know, I think I'll, I say this all the time, but it's great to hear someone else say it, which is I don't think a lot of people recognize just how much technology is changing in some of these sectors in such short amounts of time. You know, I think it's 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 taken as given now that, that we've had more technology change in the financial sector in the last two years than in the last two decades. And, you know, I I just don't think people get that and understand that there's great opportunity with that, but there's also risk with that. And that in the face of us being the most targeted nation, we have the most attacks against us of anywhere in the world. And some of it's criminals, some of it's guys in basements, and some of it is nation states. And and that they all have characteristically different views to them. And so, you know, there's the old line about, you know, offense. Offense only has to be right once. Defense has to be right all the time. 
right? And this is a, a core thing that's now part of everyone's lives. You know, when we talk to bankers, you know, I always say, you know, if cyber isn't one of the top two or three things you're thinking about, I would ask you to consider what your top two or three things are. <laughs> um, uh, so, Tim, with that, you know, I just have to thank you so much for coming and participating in this. This has been hugely interesting, and I'm glad the audience got to hear some of the, the thoughtfulness and activities you have going on. I'm going to end with two questions, okay? So question number one is, in your role, with what you're seeing today, with everything that's going on, what would you want the financial sector to hear from someone like you? We had a pivotal moment in time when it comes to cybersecurity for the nation. If we look at the past several months and the various cyber attacks we've seen, they have highlighted that the threat is proliferating and becoming more serious in terms of the impact it's having. But it's also highlighted some of the vulnerabilities we still face. So with respect to the financial sector and leaders in the financial sector, it's critically important to think about how can we improve the defenses on the front end to avoid um, being hit by a ransomware attack or other malicious activity. But what we've also experienced is that we cannot assume that there will be 100% security and that we need to have a plan in place if something does bad does happen and to include the public communications piece and to include uh, how to work with government and to share information with government uh, so that that's in place early on. I will also say, you know, looking back eight months ago and you would ask people on the street if they had heard of SolarWinds or Kaseya, I guarantee you most people had not. And what those incidents I think have also demonstrated is how to your earlier point, how much technology has been changing how much of that technology is actually being driven by some companies that people have never heard of before, and that if you work in a financial institutions, it's important to fully understand all of the technology you're using and what your potential vulnerabilities are with respect to your supply chain, so that you can, on the one hand, improve your defenses, but also make sure that you're resilient across the full spectrum of um, if there are certain failures that may occur. Well, you've said one of my favorite words, which is resilience, and that gets to my second question. So thank you for teeing that up for me. Um, recently, we had former Homeland Security Secretary Michael Chertoff on, and, and we spent the entire time talking about resilience, which is you know a superset around, around cybersecurity. And, and one of the biggest challenges, I think, for so many people in the sector is, is they think about cyber and they think about tech, or they, and, or they think about resilience and they think about tech. And you know, so many of the key vectors of attack for those people are not strictly a technology attack. It's a human attack. It's, you know, or it's a backhoe or it's, you know, a, a flood or a tornado. You know, there are all these things that hit at our resilience. We've spent most of this time talking just about one of them, which turns me to my future question for you. Over the next few decades, what do you think are going to be some of the biggest impacts to the resilience of our nation? especially as it relates to critical infrastructure. And I obviously care more you know, uh, financial services, but answer the question more broadly if you feel like it. I would answer that with two points. The first one is the nexus between cyber incidents and non-cyber incidents, where a lot of institutions have already very mature, well-exercised plans for a natural disaster, right? Uh, they now have plans for pandemics uh, because of COVID-19. What we experienced in the wake of the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack was it started out as a cyber incident, but within two or three days, it quickly had spiraled into concerns around a disruption of the supply of fuel, gas more broadly, where at uh, DHS with um, uh, you know the Jones Act and FEMA, we quickly transitioned from a, from a cyber response to a broader DHS-wide response. 
And that connection, when a cyber incident morphs into something broader, is something that financial institutions face as well. And making sure that you don't have separate plans just for a cyber incident and for a non-cyber incident, but that you also think about how some of those may come together um, and what the transition points, I think, uh, is very important. The second point I would make is we already know that some of the emerging technology is likely going to have systemic impact or is going to revolutionize certain parts of the way we do business or the way we operate, the impact of machine learning, um, the, some of the discussions around the potential impact of quantum computing on things like encryption algorithms and the need to transition to post-quantum encryption algorithms. NIST at the Department of Commerce already has a process underway. Um, so those are some of those issues where in order to be resilient against those technological breakthrough moments, uh, it's important for organizations to, to think about those early on and to develop a plan so that they can buy themselves time, given that the pace of technological innovation has tended to, out, to outpace at least the government's ability to, uh, to react quickly. Um, I, I, think it, I don't think it is. Uh, I don't think anyone's going to be shocked to hear me say that, that there are a couple of sectors that always lag on keeping up with technology. And, and the government has historically been one of them, but also the banking sector has also historically been one of them. So it's not just that we're, we have a lot of these active and future changes, but that they also are kind of having to speed up anyway because you know they've been working on technology from 10, 15, 20 years in the past. Well, with that, Tim, I know you're incredibly busy, but I just want to thank you again for coming and participating in our podcast. This has been hugely interesting, and it's always great to have a good conversation with you. So thank you for so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me.